0: Betches Media presents Donald Trump with a, a
2: stain on our country. I am someone's daughter, too. That's what
3: I do! So help me God.
4: Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches SUP podcast.
5: Mr. Vice
1: President, I'm speaking. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman.
5: I'm Caitlin Bird.
1: And this is the Veggie's Sub podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Elise is probably going to be joining us shortly. She is getting vaxxed. She's getting jabbed. As you can imagine, it is not a seamless process in this here city quite yet. So we will see, but we're thrilled that she is getting inoculated, of course. <laughs> and you got, we were just talking, you got yours too. I think me and Sammy are the lone holdouts. We're yeah. not holding out, to be clear.
5: <laughs> uh, like, you would be like, um, yes, please, immediately, like, poke me. Poke me. It's very exciting. New York is switching to 30 and over um, as of today. You can you can get, um, you know, a, a shot if you are 30 years old or over. And it's going to be 16 and over starting April 6th. Yeah, very um, exciting. So it's really exciting. I got it because, um, they're trying to reach underserved communities. Turns out I'm quite Brown. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we're like, wow. These- ya. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I, they, they opened up a center in, um, Bed-Stuy and uh, not far from my house and, I like, they, apparently I walked in to do an appointment and it was empty. It was like completely empty. I was the only person making an appointment. And then they came upstairs and like, we've got 160 doses. So um, I got to get used. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll just, just stick me with a needle, I guess. And that's what happened.
1: It's stories like that, that make like the rest of us just loiter around hoping for that. But it's like the, the, the like Willy Wonka golden ticket. You just, not everybody's going to get one. But now everybody can get one. Yeah, I'm making an appointment. I think I'm an appointment. We're getting
5: there, you guys. Herd immunity is tantalizingly close, which means everybody continue holding on for a little bit longer under these protocols and maybe don't get wild until like please don't get wild yet. Yeah, please don't get wild until we we've hit a place where it's gonna be a little bit safer for the people who can't. Uh, receive vaccines because they're immune compromised because they have other issues that prevent them from getting vaccinations because they might be allergic to materials inside the vaccines and people who can at least create some level of herd immunity so that we were not passing on variants and other things to each other. So that's the key guys just a little bit longer and then we can I guess get back to our miserable lives as they were before
1: Yeah, that's true. It's like the fact that there are so many variants out there is like a good reason to keep social distancing. Like now is the time, because if we can like the variants get stronger, the more people they infect. So if we can like stop them from making us all sick as they're still bubbling up, like that's that's it. Then we're good for later in the year. Otherwise, we're fucked for another year.
5: Also, breathing on each other is just so gross now. Yes, I agree. Like, let's not get close to each other and like breathe on each other ever again. Yeah. I feel I feel like this is just like I'm I'm just gonna continue doing it anyway. Which totally. Like no okay, way. Oh, that's Yeah. Gross. Tomorrow's
1: episode, we're gonna talk a lot about like some things from the pandemic that we want to hold on to, some things that are good to go, and we will we're gonna get into all of that fun stuff. Today we're gonna start with um So the first two days of the Derek Chauvin trial have seen very emotional testimony from witnesses on the scene that Memorial day. Uh, A highlight yesterday, I don't know if it's highlight, but it was definitely a really compelling testimony was more from Donald Williams. He was a witness who was on the scene. He's also a martial artist. He witnessed the entire situation. The martial artist part is relevant because he knew what he was watching. The, the, the defense is using a lot of rationalization that Derek Chauvin was doing what he was trained to do. But we hear are several witnesses. One is a first responder, the 911 dispatcher, another, the mixed martial artist who are saying, no, you're not, you're not trained to do that. You're not trained to do that. Yesterday was really enraging to watch because the defense tried to paint Williams as an angry black man. So, so transparently to somehow show I guess the objective is to show that him getting angry at the cops while they were killing someone disqualifies him from like disagreeing with the murder. But Williams knew exactly what was happening, of course. So let's listen to some of this really powerful exchange between he and one of the defense attorneys.
3: Do you recall saying, I dare you to touch me like that. I swear I'll slap the fucking, the fuck out of both of you.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean to
3: So again, sir. It's fair to say that you grew angrier and angrier.
6: No, I grew professional and professional. I stayed in my body. You can't pay me out to be angry.
1: That's it. There was a bit more before that of a similar back and forth, just the defense attorney forcing Williams to repeat the words that he said that day, which, of course, words do not kill people.
5: Yeah, I mean, but more than that, like to assume that a if- police officer armed and backed by the state feels threatened by a guy saying, if you touch me like that, I would fuck you up while he's murdering a person. Um, Just like there's a whole bunch of logic that, that doesn't hold. It requires a lot of the rationalization, a lot of the processing around this. And I haven't watched because I, unfortunately, like I care about myself emotionally and I can't do that kind of lifting right now. It's really, Um, really tough. It's, yeah, it's, like, brutally hard, and um, I recently, like, watched a, like, small documentary about, like, Medgar Evers, and it's just, like, reminding me that, like, Black people are murdered in this country all the time just for trying to live Mm -hmm. um, and, like, participate in society. Um, So it's just really hard to kind of process, like, like, there's this trial, yes, but, like, the entire frame of thinking requires white supremacy to make it make sense. Because in theory, this should have been pled out. Like there's no reason to have a trial except that he thinks that there's, or that prosecutors feel like they have to hold one or that uh, Chauvin feels that he has to try to defend himself. Like there's really no defending it. It's a crime captured on video. Police are not supposed to murder civilians it's just not supposed to happen the whole purpose of police is to not do that that's that's literally in theory why we have enforcement law enforcement but it's not it's not in reality in reality it's a suppression tactic it's a tool of white supremacy it's you know law enforcement regardless of the the goodness or badness of any individual people within it is not systemically designed to protect people. And I think fundamentally you, you get that same reasoning when you watch his defense, which basically rests on the idea that he had a right to murder, you know, George Floyd. It's, it literally rests upon this idea that like there's nothing wrong. The system worked as it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And You can't necessarily argue with that. I mean, like that reasoning is openly white supremacist, but it is the reasoning that built our modern law enforcement structure. So in one way, you can't indict Derek Chauvin for being the guy who believed it was true and carried it out. On the other hand, like it should indict our system. This should be the end of how we think about law enforcement. Um, It's not. (laughs) We continue to like suggest more money for cops. It's the worst idea I've ever heard. But
1: yeah, yeah. I think the fact that you're right, their only defense, their unspoken defense is that that they're getting to with their like actual verbal defense is that he should have had a right to kill him. There was no reason he shouldn't have done it in that moment. And you can tell that by the fact that they're they're constantly changing their defense. They're first saying like, Oh no, he, he was kneeling down in a way that wasn't supposed to have that effect or, Oh, he was stressed or, Oh, he was just doing what he was trained to do. Oh, Floyd was had ingested substances. So which is it then? Which is it then? No, you kneeled on his neck and he died. We
3: watched it.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's, it's really, really undeniable. I mean, there's, it's not just that we've, I mean, I haven't watched it and I I haven't really engaged again, because like I think everybody's got certain lines and limits and I I don't feel like I need that to validate what's happened, but it's it's now stark enough that in order to make it not happen, you have to actively imbibe like certain white supremacist framing that suggests that black people are inferior, they belong beneath white people that their lives are not valuable or meaningful that things like consuming substances or you know anything like that fundamentally removes our humanity we we have less humanity than white people and it is easier to dispose of i mean there's just multiple levels of tropes in there and it's important to kind of expose those and talk about what is fueling that thinking because it's just different levels of dehumanization where like you we wouldn't be having this argument if it was a white person but it would never have happened to a white person like we we keep having this this thing where it's like oh well more white people are killed by cops it's like well more white people exist in the country and as a ratio like we're you know no one assumes that like in those situations that the whiteness of the person is doing the heavy lifting as to how they ended up in that situation. Whereas mm-hmm. black people, it's almost entirely because we exist it is a, a way to punish our existence. Um, and this is pretty common and goes back really far and, you know, it, it's never stopped. You know, it's, it's foundational. So the, when I think about that, yeah.
1: As they've been saying, Again, George Floyd is not in trials, so and I'm gonna harp on the things they're saying about him. But, you know, people will hear, oh, he had two Percocet on him. And I was joking with Sammy, I was literally, I was like, who doesn't? And that's barely a joke because do we fucking know the substance abuse crisis in this country? The amount of white people who have two Xanax on them, who have two Percocet on them, who have heroin on them, who look like nice white people. And were this to happen to them, I guess maybe it would come up in the defense, but this is two casual observers that are not educated enough. And even people that, I feel like the, the messages that were being um, in June whenever, when this happened and people were trying to educate themselves, the, the The trial prevents, it's it's a totally new area. There's totally new topics that people need to be educating themselves and on guard about. And one of them is this like, character assassinations. I mean, they happened right after Floyd died, but they're more relevant here. And I, I wish I've seen more media challenging them more directly and saying that they're as a result of race and like flip it around and imagine if this were a white person, um, because the amount of times they've said he had much that he was drunk. It's like, look around. What are you talking about? Like, that means nothing. That means it just the amount of people I know. And I've had I have a family member who was a heroin addict and went to jail so many times and is thriving now because he was never truly like held accountable legally. And when he was, uh, our family was able to pay to have it dealt with. I mean, the amount of money it took to have it dealt with so that he could have a normal life. And there's just millions and millions and millions of kids who are like this, millions of people, millions of adults. And I just find it so personally disgusting that they would bring up something like that when we have an opioid crisis that is out of control. And just beyond that, the amount of casual drug use that goes on constantly, that is in the top 40 that kids are dancing to on TikTok. And then in Minneapolis, you're going to go and say that he had two Percocet and he deserved to die. It's its so, I can't I can't handle it.
5: Yeah, it's it's just a, a rationalization as most most things are are what we call ex post facto rationalization. People do things that dehumanize people of color um, and then work backwards to find a way that it made sense. And like if you look at our country's history, there's a lot I mean, I'm going to Toss out a word that everyone should look up, driptomania, which is a, someone actually came up with a scientific term, scientific. This is like, yeah, when people say racist size, is it racist? Like I'm just like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But um, to describe why black people would try to flee slavery, they suggested that it was a mental disorder wanting to be free because how could that otherwise explain it Mm -hmm. if they're just regular humans who are being horribly oppressed then oh my god then we're the bad guys so I guess it's because they're crazy these the people the same like oh they're happy they're singing songs people um yeah but I mean it all comes from the same place right which is yeah We've done this thing and we need to rationalize why it's okay. And so we'll pathologize everything that it's like, this is the difference when bringing up like drug use between white people and black people is that for white people, it becomes the individual white person. It becomes like, Oh, what happened in their lives? What made them do this? It starts from a, an assumption that they had agency and they are, people who are making decisions, but that they're not responsible for the negative decisions that they make, which is also something that's being wrapped up in this trial, right? On the other side, Black people, anytime there's a mistake, it becomes, oh, that's because you're Black, because you're not really human the way white people are, because you can't help yourself, because you are closer to being an animal than white people are, because you are uncivilized, because you are wild, because you are incapable of rational decision-making. And so instead of saying, hey, what kind of factors could lead to this person making these kinds of decisions, or "Hmm, this actually seems like a relatively normal behavior, it becomes pathologized like, oh my God, he had Percocet on him because black people can't get through their day without drugs. And I'm like, okay, well, drug use is the same. But the statistic, the truth doesn't matter because the pathology is the key. I can't get through my day without drugs. Just kidding. I can get through their day without drugs. What is going on? It is 2021. Absolutely not. Okay. Right. And, and you know what? I don't like the
1: wine mommy culture either, but it's a reality like substance use and glorifying casual substance use is everywhere. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm so fixated on that, but it just it's, it happens constantly. It happens every single time. And you, I just know that there were people watching that that probably, you know, like you said, are like, well, yeah, I don't know. That sounds bad. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why don't you go look in your daughter's purse?
5: Yeah, I mean, but that's different because their daughter is an individual because they know them because yeah. they see humanity. And it's really important to emphasize that they're going to do as much as they can to to emphasize the humanity of Derek Chauvin, you know, and make clear that he's just a person. And he, not only is he a person, he is family. He has, I mean, all of these things and suggest that like George Floyd was like this borderline animalistic brute, you know, and who couldn't have been controlled any other way than being murdered. Like there's no way for, for that relationship to have ended with like, hey man, you know, take care another day or whatever. I right. mean, right. we have white men who have murdered people or people who are perceived as white um, who get the benefit of the doubt all the time uh, and can have, have literally murdered people have weapons on them, are carrying weapons. Have, have we, we know that they've done this thing and they get taken in, sometimes uninjured, often, sometimes completely fine. Some, they're, they're given food, they're, they're supported. And yet they're going to argue, and they are arguing that a, a black man who's unarmed and had two Percocet on him, which by the way, if he were like really pathologized, I guess he, he would have more than two right what is that it's like it's like a few hours worth of percocet that's not like like for days he's not like in a haze whatever
1: yeah totally and the defense is saying you know appeared to be too percocet i i can't verify exactly what was on him the point is that it doesn't matter and just the casual throwing out of that like it was a huge indictment was just insane Another really difficult story for today we can't not address is that in New York City on Monday, there was a brutally violent attack on a 65-year-old Asian woman in New York City. Uh, a man has been arrested for the assault and for hate crimes after beating the Filipina woman while she was on her way to church. This happened outside of a luxury apartment building in Hell's Kitchen right by Times Square. And uh, the security guards and other persons present in the building of the lobby did nothing. They watched, and then they, they seemed to close the door, even though the assailant was not approaching the building. It didn't look like there was any risk that the assailant was interested in entering the building. The assailant was screamed racist things at the woman and beat her. She's severely, severely injured, and she's in the hospital. Yeah. I think that on top of the Floyd trial has made this week really tough.
5: I mean, it, it. It's really important to continue highlighting that the the racism against particularly East and South Asian people, uh, Southeast Asian uh, people, has been like especially heightened um, since coronavirus happened. Uh, has has like completely altered our, our landscape and specifically the racist taunting that was emphasized by the former president of the United States. I'm so mad. Um, To have that kind of platform and then to say, oh, this is the fault of people who look like this and to ascribe it to people's characteristics has emphasized a, a layer of violence. We can talk about lots of old tropes So many tropes, you guys, white supremacy, it's just a vortex of terrible, terrible thinking um, and rationalizations, but, um, and it's important to recognize that like, yeah, of course I understand that like assailants sometimes are, are black and Latino and that doesn't necessarily mean that like I'm saying, oh, it's really white people's fault. But when you construct a society in which Everybody has to be in each other's throats because they're all trying to get one piece of this white supremacist pie. And the only way to do it is to tear the other person down to suggest that they're less human. So you can be more human to to build these structures that say these people who are foreign, you can tell they're not us are a focus and that xenophobia shapes that identity that's a that's part of white supremacy that was not something that like we did on our own as marginalized groups and it's not a set of thinking that we internally developed it is something that society rewarded that society promotes and that society is shaped by white supremacy
1: yeah and i've seen i've seen more in the response to this like stop asian hate is so important to keep saying of course and it's also, I've also seen challenges of, you know, people want to bring, well, and no, we should end white supremacy. And I also mentioned that on a podcast, but then read further into how that dismisses the very specific issue happening with Asian Americans right now. But the, Stop Asian hate is very easy for people to share because it implies that not all of us can imagine committing a hateful, brutal, violent act against an Asian person or a person. So it's so easy for people to inherit that idea. Just stop Asian hate. That's fine. But the real issue is you have to stop. um, You have to stop messing up people's names and you have to stop laughing at racist jokes and you have to make better representation and you have to be more transparent about salary with your Asian colleagues. Like it's to stop Asian hate. You have to take all of those steps.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's this it's the same set of structures that replicate things like white supremacy. It's these are all big parts of the same architecture. It's not to say, oh, man, this is really a white supremacy issue and not an anti-Asian issue. It's very specifically an anti-Asian issue.
6: (laughs) Elise Elise has um, joined us for our last topic of the day. Tell us everything. Um hello everyone. I am late for the podcast today because I was getting the Pfizer vaccine. Oh yeah. Okay. We got a Pfizer
1: bitch. We got a Moderna bitch. I don't
6: know what kind of bitch I'm gonna be.
1: I'll be any kind Never of bitch. Know. We, have to, we, we have to collect them. We do, we have to re- representation matters.
6: <laughs> um I got my vaccine at Walgreens. Um God bless turning 30 in quarantine. <laughs> Um, there was chaos at first, but ultimately, very smoothly, and here's my vaccine card.
1: Amazing, amazing. I am thrilled You're here. You've come at the perfect time because we saved Matt Getz for you. Ah, yes! <laughs> <laughs> we saved Matt Getz for you. We just did some really, we talked about the trial and the hate crimes, and now we're going to talk about Matt Getz.
2: Great. And this is
1: also a very dark story. If true, and uh, we'll discuss if we think it's true. So let's start with Matt Getz. So yesterday, the New York Times reported that three sources told them the Justice Department was investigating a possible sexual relationship with the Florida, the Florida representative had with an underage girl, a girl who was 17, and whether he paid for her to travel with him. Such a move would constitute Sex trafficking of a minor punishable by federal charges. And this inquiry stems from a broader one looking at a friend of Getz's. It's a local official in Florida named Joel Greenberg who just sounds like a Jeffrey Epstein light, like same shit. He's been indicted on sex trafficking on uh, exchanging money for sex with underage people. This dude even cool. visited sounds like the White an House. Awesome friend. Oh yeah, he went to the White House with Getz and uh, with Gates in 2019.
6: Amazing.
1: Old friends. So this investigation it did start in the Trump administration. Getz denies the claim. He says he can be proven right. Let's listen to him expand on his claim on Tuckle Carlson show last night. Again, this is what Matt Getz says happened.
3: On March sixteenth, my father got a text message demanding a meeting wherein a person demanded twenty five million dollars in exchange for making horrible sex trafficking allegations against me go away our family was so troubled by that we went to the local fbi and the fbi and the department of justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire which he did with the former department of justice official tonight i am demanding that the department of justice and the fbi release The audio recordings that were made under their supervision and at their direction, which will prove my innocence and that will show that these allegations aren't true. They're merely intended to try to bleed my family out of money. And this former Department of Justice official tomorrow was supposed to be contacted by my father so that specific instructions could be given regarding the wiring of $4.5 million as a down payment on this bribe. I don't think it's a coincidence that tonight somehow the New York Times is leaking this information, smearing me and ruining the investigation that would likely result in uh, one of the former colleagues of the current DOJ being brought to justice uh, for trying to extort me and my family.
5: So a a couple of obvious questions that come to mind, and again, just to restate, this just happened, don't have any other information beyond what we've
4: already said um first so well,
1: that who? clip goes on so a couple For- of obvious <laughs> <laughs> eight minutes i'm going to tell you what else happens in this clip and this clip gets is like tucker you know how it is to be falsely accused you were once and then tucker carlson was like yeah but it was like a viewer who accused me 20 years ago who was found to have like some mental instability and then gets is like um you know you know remember when we went to dinner together in florida with my friend the girl and and Tucker Carlson goes, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then when it ends, he goes, that was the weirdest interview I've ever conducted. Tucker
6: Carlson. Yeah. It's pretty bad when you're watching an interview and you're like, the, like Tucker Carlson is speaking for you and in the interview <laughs> like, that's not good. Um, and like when he's the reasonable person, that's a yeah. very bad situation. And it is really funny to watch him. Run as far as he can from the buddy buddy shit that Matt Gates is trying to do in this interview. He's like, he's like, yeah, I don't think we ever had dinner, man. I don't know.
1: What <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mark, gets, <is> <sighs> Mark Gates, is it? Mark, I'm
6: sorry, I had dinner with Rick you?
1: Gates, but not Mark Gates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is wild. If he has made up a very elaborate story, um, I do not think the Times. I read the the bylines on this. I do not think the Times would publish a report like this that it did not know was at least partially true. Uh, What do we think?
6: I mean, it seems like there is an investigation, whether that investig like we need to know a lot more about what that investigation entails, but there's something very Brett Kavanaugh-y about his response to just be like, my daddy's wearing a wire. My, everyone's being mean to my daddy. And like, <laughs> it's like, like there's something very like crying about your calendars to me about this. Right. Like the lady doth protest too much.
1: Right. The script was very, very meticulous.
5: No, it's also extremely specific in very weird ways to like jump to accusations that haven't actually been made yet. so so where he's like i never did q well q (laughs) 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 i never did like a b c and they're like this entire discussion is about xyz yeah it's it's about this totally different like, maybe this specific person, but you're under, like, this entire broad thing. Oh, you're being extorted for, like, $25 million. I
6: also didn't realize that Matt and his family had neither. money like that.
5: I mean, most members of Congress are worth more than we immediately would think. Um, yeah. It's a very millionaires club. Yeah. The richest member of, co- of the
1: Senate, do you guys know who it is? This is, like, my favorite fact. It's I Mark know, it Warner. Used to be it's Kelly. Oh, but it's Mark Warner. It's fucking Mark Warner, who wow, like huh, quite is disturbing. so wealthy. And remember last year he like went viral because he couldn't make a tuna salad sandwich. <laughs> like you're eating tuna salad sandwich on white bread, and you're worth like 200 million dollars. That's
5: exactly why he can't Good make. A <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. has he ever? He, this is the first time he was like, "Oh my god, I'm in my kitchen." I usually usually there are chefs here. Yes. Mark Warner is a Democrat from Virginia who we love. So good
6: yes. for Mark. This is a digression. But when I worked at a summer camp one summer, there was a kid there who was a part of the Saudi royal family. It was one of the campers. And um, my friend was his counselor on his floor. And one day he came in and he realized that this kid had not unpacked his bag because he like did not know how. Because someone else had packed it for him And he had never unpacked a bag Or put a drawer together or anything So my friend had to help him Unpack his bag And then he also tried to He also tried to bring $1,500 in cash to the mall (laughs) we went on a trip to the mall with all the eighth graders and he came up to my friend and was like, is this enough money for the mall, Paul? And Paul was like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Don't bring that
1: to the mall. (laughs) Yeah. This Matt gets definitely sounds like somebody who's had to make up an elaborate excuse before involving his father and their riches.
6: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, this is a very, very serious allegation. And, um, he has this defense and I feel weird saying anything else. I mean, it's hard to imagine the, I guess you can kind of imagine and like a crazy TV show, the New York Times, like maybe those sources would not have known about another investigation. But I think that the reporters, I don't know, this would be um, a devastating error on behalf. Of yeah. <laughs> it would
6: be very, very bad if they published it and it wasn't true. Not that that's never happened like that something like this would be pretty unprecedented
5: they 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 do a lot of checking and there is like a crossover with the the legal department before they like release something like a united states congressman being investigated for sex trafficking a 17 year old girl yeah that feels very specific and it feels like something definitely have to check in on before you do that Yes, and then it's really disturbing can we talk about for a second the fact that a huge chunk of the defenses of gates including his own is that 17 is the age of consent in multiple states that's not an excuse right any way shape or form yeah fuck teenagers are teenagers Mm -hmm. that's just a general that's just my general take Right. Or maybe you could argue twenty, but I find myself like thinking about being twenty years old and being interested in in teenagers and being like, no, that's not that wasn't my energy. <laughs> it was definitely no. Imagine if a guy. Well, how old is
1: Matt Gates? He's like he's like maybe a little older than us. and we know people in their late thirties. Like that's we're almost there.
6: No, if, if I one would of not them, be please. No, if, if my friend.
5: friend. <laughs> like, it's a yeah. little bit Woody Allen. It's a little a wee bit. It's That's, a, I say a smidge. Jerry Seinfeld. It's probably like I'm trying to figure out what universe. I mean, it would
6: be more Woody Allen if he was dating Nestor. It would maybe but... it's a friend of
5: Nestor's. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. it's true. Woody Allen is dating his adopted daughter. <laughs> That will be his excuse. He's going to
1: think that's going to legitimize it. I don't know. I'm very curious to see where where this story is going. That's our show. Stick around for a conversation I had with Jen Klein. She co-chairs the White House Gender Policy Council. And we talked about on the last day of this godforsaken Women's History Month, we talked about what it really means, the stat that we have fallen 30 years behind in workforce participation. What does that mean? Does that mean it's going to take 30 years to catch back up? what do we do with this moment where women are angry and realizing how fucked up expectations for us have been for a long time. And so she sort of, we talked about how to really uh, optimize this opportunity. So stick around for that.
4: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well,
1: Everyone, it is Amanda here and today I'm back with Jennifer Klein. She's the co-chair of the White House Gender Policy Council and she's here to chat with us at the end of Women's History Month about the pandemic's impact on women and how we can maybe undo some of the damage. Welcome Jennifer. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank
0: you so much for having me.
1: I am particularly aggrieved that this is like our second Women's History Month in quarantine. It was last year. We're like midway through. They sent us home and now we've had a whole nother March in quarantine, but not without. There's been a lot of activity going on.
0: That is for sure. Um, And I think that um, this Women's History Month, a year into covid, it's a particularly important time to both recognize the contributions that women have made throughout history, um, which is obviously one important part of the month, but also to really focus attention on the women that we don't always talk about. You know, a year into COVID, women are still contending with not only a public health crisis, but also an economic crisis. And on top of those challenges, a caregiving crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that as you know, the pandemic has exacerbated barriers that have held women back, especially women of color, um, for years and made things um, more visible, but also worse, um, forcing yeah. many to leave the workforce, manage virtual schooling, um, and absorb additional caregiving responsibilities for their children, for, for uh, sick and aging relatives, et cetera. Um, and also, you know, again, I, I I will never use the word silver lining, but one thing that we have seen um, because of the pandemic is a little bit more of recognition of the women who have been on the front lines in the response to COVID. Um, you know, these are the essential workers. And this Women's History Month, I think it is past time. But also a great time to recognize the work that these essential workers have been doing, keeping our economy, our communities, and our families going. Um, you know, those are the grocery workers, the health aides, um, the nursing staff, uh, um, really at every level, public health professionals, um, childcare workers teachers um, who literally have been the backbone for for uh, decades and of, of not only of our economy, but also of our communities. And um, again, just to, to circle back to Women's History Month, it's it's time to recognize their contributions as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've had that sense, too, that it does really feel like a good opportunity now that this, this crisis has exposed a lot of things that women have been very familiar with for a long time to expose them uh, more, more directly and actually act on them, which the administration has already done through the American Rescue Plan. So you just talked about, and we've been talking about on the show all month, really all year, about this disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on women. As you mentioned, from job loss to child care challenges to leaving the workforce altogether to care for children if people had that option with more income. And a lot of women didn't really have a financial uh, safety net, but were forced to make that choice anyway. So how does the immediate response in the the provisions in the American Rescue Plan address these issues? Is sort of my first question, and secondly, how will those provisions sort of help buoy women as we emerge from this crisis a little bit longer term?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, before I before I jump into the American Rescue Plan, I I just also add that you know you've pointed out um, and. And you have been over the course of this month, as you just mentioned, the job losses that have literally erased 30 years of progress that women have made in the labor force. The other thing, you know, we we marked Equal Pay Day, or one of the Equal Pay Days this month. And the other thing to recognize is that, in addition to the women who've literally left the workforce, um, you know, one of the things that that we pointed out on Equal Pay Day, and it bears repeating, is that you know part of the the pay gap is literal discrimination. So, you know, a woman doing the same job as a man um, and ma- being paid less. But part of that are these other factors, which again, we're seeing in the pandemic. You know, number one, additional caregiving responsibilities, which either take women out of the workforce intermittently or sometimes permanently. Um, and also, you know, what I what I talked about earlier about essential workers is this sort of notion of occupational segregation. You know, women have historically been overrepresented in, in fields where they get paid less. Some of the ones, many of the ones I mentioned earlier. Um, and again, that is contributing to the economic distress Um So then Mm -hmm. to get to the question you asked um, about the American Rescue Plan, I mean, you know, I think there's so much that is in there that is critical to helping women and their families get through this pandemic. everything from literally getting vaccines in arms and kids back to school, and then the very real and very immediate um, economic support that it provides. So it, as it increases the child tax credit from $2,000 per child to $3,000 per child, um, $3,600 for a child under six and actually makes 17 year olds qualifying children for the year. Um, and that means that a typical family of four with two young kids will receive an additional $3,200 in assistance. And that benefits 66 million children. Um, The ARP also increases the earned income tax credit for 17 million workers. Um, by as much as $1,000, and that benefits the cashiers, food preparers, and servers, and home health aides that I mentioned earlier, those frontline workers who are um, helping communities get through the crisis. It expands child care assistance and helps those hard-hit child care providers who are disproportionately women of color cover their costs. It's actually... Through these tax, the child care tax credits um, to cover the cost of child care. It is the single biggest investment in child care since World War Two. Um, awesome. And then it also the ARP also gives families an additional tax credit to um, help cut childcare care costs. Um, finally, yeah. I. I. As you can hear, I can go on and on, Um, but it also provides one hundred and thirty billion dollars to help schools um, serve all students um, and get them back to school safely, um, which is, as we all heard, was President Biden's goal to do within his first hundred days of his administration and obviously has has beat that um, beat that goal. And, you know, together, these historic actions will rescue our economy and support women and families literally cut child poverty in half.
1: Incredible. Yeah. I mean, as you've been talking, it's so clear that these these issues that disproportionately impact women, all of these intersections, they compound and the plan really addresses that. And and provide support in all of those areas. What considerations were made to ensure the American Rescue Plan would have an equitable impact on a woman? You spoke before about how this pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on women of color.
0: I think literally every one of those policies that I just ran through, um, deep consideration was made um, not only to gender gaps, but also racial gaps. Um, and sort of a focus on racial equity as well as gender equity. Um, and that's why these particular policies were chosen. This is why this investment was made. Um, you know, I think what we, you know, as we talked about earlier, what we have seen is um, really something that has long existed, which is, you know, not only the the, the gender disparities, but also disparities based on race yeah. and really other um forms of discrimination and if not literal discrimination barriers that have been placed on people who've been, you know, the most marginalized. And so what this plan does is focus um, investment and attention on really all of those communities.
1: Awesome. You mentioned um, that women's labor force participation has now reached its lowest point in more than 30 years. I see this statistic a lot. I cite it a lot. It's really alarming, but I don't really know how to wrap my head around it. Does this mean we have 30 years of ground to make up again, or can we close those gaps more efficiently as we recover from the pandemic and implement policies that will make us stronger? What what does that number, that 30 years number really mean?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you, you and I were talking about this earlier, I think the notion um, that, um, again, we, we both carefully avoided the use of the word opportunity, but yeah. I think the fact that, um, that this has really, this pandemic, and as I said at the outset, you know, the economic crisis that followed and the caregiving crisis that followed has laid bare um, what has long existed, it made it worse, but that doesn't mean it's gonna take 30 years to make it better. Um, but Great. you know what you'll see, both through the American Rescue Plan and you know the additional investments um, to build back this economy better, because what we don't need is to go back to the economy that existed before. We need a better economy, an economy that works for everybody. You're gonna see over the course of the next few weeks, the president making additional announcements and investments, um, calling for additional investments. Um, to really get at these longstanding deep issues of inequity And if we can do that, if as a country we see what is needed and we can, you know, get there, um, then I think, you know, we will end up in a better place. We will end up with an economy that actually works for people, that invests in our families, um, that gives people an equal shot. I mean, I think that is what we really need to do is level the playing field so that people have an equal shot without these barriers placed in front of them at every turn.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And finally, my last question, you mentioned uh, straight up gender discrimination as well as a concern that the administration wants to address. What else when it comes to this, can we expect the White House to prioritize in the coming year? Specifically, um, I've seen some activity and some encouragement for Congress to act on the Paycheck Fairness Act
0: yeah I would say that's that's number one on the agenda um is is to do exactly that enact the paycheck fairness act, and the president would love to sign that piece of legislation. so he spoke about it on equal pay day and you will hear him talking about it in the future. and then I think there are some in, um, executive actions that um we can take that we are considering right now. you know one of the key issues um, to address the pay gap is transparency. What does that mean that means that if you don't know what your problem is you can't solve your problem and that you know literally means that workers um can't in many cases actually ask about a a colleague's salary or um or or talk about it with their employer and you know lifting that veil of secrecy is one step toward actually getting to pay equity Um, there's also you know sort of a broader effort at transparency that you know would either encourage or require employers to disclose their pay gaps, their median pay gaps over the, you know, the, their entire workforce. And what we've seen when companies do that is that, again, when they know they have a problem, they address it. And so, you know, again, mm-hmm. we'll be working toward increasing transparency um, to really get immediately to the pay gap.
1: Yeah. Lots of exciting things. Thank you so much for your time, Jennifer. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub
0: Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and send us your emails to
3: Suppod at Betches.com. Betches.